This story is brought to your ears by all our fantastic supporters on Patreon. To get in on the action yourself with bloopers, extras, and the occasional early story, join us at patreon.com slash voiceofallmtg. For more stories, or just a chat, visit voiceofallmtg.com. And now, Voice of All presents Home Waters, Episode 7 of the Battle for Zendikar. When we last saw the merfolk planeswalker Kiora, she had narrowly escaped from a battle with a deity, the sea god Thassa on Theros. Although she hadn't got what she wanted out of the fight, neither had she left empty-handed, fleeing Theros with the god's sacred weapon in hand. Now she returns to her home plane of Zendikar, ready to fight the monstrous Eldrazi that threaten her world with destruction. They are massive, unstoppable. But the Eldrazi are not only monsters. The merfolk of Zendikar have long worshipped them as deities. And Kiora has already faced one god and lived to tell about it. Come on, Kiora said in a dream. She took Tori's small, webbed hand in her own and tugged. Elder Misha's telling stories. Keep up, we're gonna miss it. She pulled her sister along with her, and the two young merfolk sat down on the beach with the other youths just as Elder Misha began to speak. The other adults had all retreated to the far end of the beach, barely visible in the moonlight, where they told their own stories. Stories for adults. Misha's story was for children. The matriarch spoke above the surf in a soft but piercing voice. Long ago, but in our very own sea, the great god Ula was preparing for a hunt. Ula, who had made the seas, the ocean dweller's highest god, dour and proud. She stuck out her tongue at him. Turi stuck out her tongue, too. Ula was furious at the dolphins, whose frolicking he took as an insult to his dignity. And so he planned to hunt one of them, as an example to the others. But dolphins are tricksters and beloved of Kosi, the greatest trickster of all. Kosi stories. All the best stories were Kosi stories, but the other adults never listened to them. And so Kosi decided to foul Ula's hunt. The night before the hunt, Kosi snuck to Ula's bedside at the bottom of the sea and swapped his great spear for a gull's feather, which he enchanted to look exactly the same. Amiria saw this from her lofty perch in the Sky Realm, but she said nothing for she enjoyed watching the other two gods quarrel. In the morning, Ula set out for his hunt, none the wiser. He gave a great bellowing speech about his dignity and his station. The dolphins clustered around to hear, for they had been told by Kosi that they had nothing to fear. This only made Ula angrier. He struck with his spear that was not a spear once, twice. But the dolphins only laughed, for in truth it was a feather, 
and could do no worse than tickle their sleek sides. Elder Misha did a shockingly good impression of the high, chittering laughter of a dolphin. The children giggled. Ula did not understand how the dolphins were unharmed, but he knew when he was being mocked. He lashed out at them more, struck again and again, tried to twist his spear inside the wounds he had not caused. The dolphins shrieked with glee. Enraged, Ula snapped the useless spear across his knee and found himself holding two halves of a simple feather. The dolphins laughed so hard you can still hear them laughing even to this day. Kiora hit the sand hard on her hands and knees, ears ringing, vision swimming. Planes walking. Ha! 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 Kiora preferred to swim, to push down and down, until the coldest, darkest depths of two world's oceans ran together to become one, bridging a senseless chaos far darker, far colder. But in this particular case, she was lucky to have arrived at all. Home. Zendikar. She coughed, sucking in air, gills opening and closing. She was trembling, exhausted, filthy, coated in muck from the bottom of an ocean a world away. Her hands were numb, so she had no idea if she was empty-handed. She hoped the mud wasn't the only thing she'd brought with her from Theros. Her vision cleared. She looked down. There, still clutched tightly in both hands, was the weapon of a god. She let out a long, rattling laugh. I won. I beat a god. I won. The two-pronged spear was unwieldy, longer than she was tall, though it had been far larger when the sea god Thassa held it. It seemed to have hardly any weight at all. As Kiora watched, the starfield that marked it as the work of a god, what the people of Theros called the Touch of Nyx, seemed to thin and dry, as though evaporating, as though the air of this different world was anathema to the stuff of gods. Soon, the Bident took on the texture of dried coral. Disappointing. Kiora hoped it was still a weapon worthy of a god, but... Even if it was just a spear, it was the finest trophy she'd ever taken. Perhaps she'd give it to Tori, to go with her other mementos of Kiora's travels. If Tori was still alive. If any of them were. If the Eldrazi hadn't killed them all. Kiora stumbled to her feet. She was still dazed after a massive magical battle, being choked nearly to death by a god and pushing through a desperate, messy planeswalk. But this was Zendikar. It wasn't safe, especially not now. She looked around. She stood on the shores of Tazim, waves lapped against the beach. The sun shone. Great stones reached into the sky, defying the bonds of gravity. Zendikar lived. 
Kiora whooped and ran out into the slapping surf, letting the water of Zendikar's sea wash away the mud of Theros. The Bident sang a brief, clear note when it hit the water. Only that, but it was promising. Cool, clean water flowed over and around her, washing the sea-bottom taste of her fight with Thassa out of her gills. She was clean, and she was free, and she was home. She dove into a sea that tasted like no other anywhere. She sped along the shore, spun, dove, and careened toward the surface, breaching in a huge arc. Kiro was in mid-air when she saw it, an expanse of beach that was... wrong. All fine, gray dust, spongy and brittle. She twisted to look, hit the water at a strange and stinging angle, and forced her way back to the surface. The beach looked wrong. It sounded wrong, too, each wave dissipating against it with a hiss and leaving the sand if that's what it was, completely, impossibly dry. She dove, plucked a crab from the surf, and climbed onto the rocky shore near the dead beach. Sorry, friend. She tossed the crab onto the unnatural gray beach. The crab righted itself, stood tall in a threatening display, and scuttled back into the water. Satisfied that the stuff wasn't going to instantly kill her, Kiora stepped out onto the beach. The texture was fine, more dust than sand, and she could feel it draw the moisture from her feet. What had been solid stones were now pitted and crumbling lumps. Was this what the Eldrazi were doing to Zendikar? A gust of wind whipped up puffs of the dust. Kiora's body reacted as though she were underwater, Clear lids closed, lungs shut off, gills opened. She spat in disgust and dove back into the sea, blinking. She imagined that grit circulating through the ocean, clogging everything until life became impossible. Kior gripped the bident and focused her will into it. Slowly, as she floated there, her senses expanded. Tides and currents, continental shelves and underwater vents, algal blooms and anoxic zones. She felt them all, stretching out around her like the fingers of her own hand. The vile beach behind her was a great dead weight, a hole in her awareness. Along the shore and even out on the sea bottom, open ocean, she could feel more dead places, robbed of all life by the encroachment of the Eldrazi. Eldrazi in the oceans. Bad enough when they'd attacked dry land. Now they had taken to the water, swimming through her ocean, sapping the life out of it, scraping away at the sea bottom. She could feel them. But the Eldrazi weren't the only things out there. She couldn't sense them, but the merfolk of Zendikar were still alive out there, still fighting. They had to be. Kiora swam away from the lifeless shore and turned northward to follow the coast, looking for any sign of habitation. In some places, Zendikar was as it had always been. In others, it was a blighted wasteland. Merfolk settlements sat abandoned on the coastal plain, swallowed by seaweed or 
reduced to shifting, lifeless ruins choked by dust. Kiora cruised low over the first few to look for survivors, but found only small Eldrazi probing the ruins, sifting through the rubble, looking for gods knew what. The gods, the gods do, do know, know what. Ula, Kosi, and Emeria, the gods of Zendikar's merfolk. Since unmasked as the Eldrazi Titans, Ulamog, Kozalek, and Emrakul. Were they gods? Did they have a plan for Zendikar? Or were they just mindless beasts, consuming without thought or purpose? After spotting the Eldrazi poking around the ruins, she kept well above the abandoned settlements. Looking for unlikely survivors wasn't worth being caught unawares in tight confines. As the sun sank low in the sky, she found a cave high on a cliff face to stay the night. With the last of her flagging strength, she called a giant octopus from Zendikar's depths. It lifted her up to the cave, and then settled in to guard her against Eldrazi. Beyond the narrow opening was an open cavern lit by a skylight. The chamber was worked stone, and at the far end stood an altar to the three. She had traveled with her tribe to an altar very much like this one, more than once, to lay offerings at the feet of uncaring stone gods. The supplicants brought hedron shards and land fruit for Ameria, shells and pearls for Ula, and nothing for Kosi. She and Tori had snuck back in the night to leave Kosi knotted ropes and whisper secrets in his ear and his altar was never bare when they arrived. They'd been children, offering their devotion to the forbidden god just for the thrill, the sense of transgression. She'd wondered even then how many of her elders had done the same in their youth, and how many had never stopped. No one worshipped Kosi. Everyone knew that. The adults refused to listen to the stories about him. Not, she learned later, because the stories were childish, but because they were blasphemous, and it was shameful to hear them. So why had they let anyone tell the children those stories? Why not stick to the pious stories, the daytime stories, of the three gods creating water, earth, and sky? Why tell stories that made the gods seem foolish? Why build statues to Kosi at all? A shiver went through her. The gods' gazes were blank, pitiless. It would be easy, all too easy, to revere them still, to think that the monstrosities that had risen really were gods, worthy of worship. It would be easy. Except that she remembered the stories of Kosi stealing Amaria's robes, or tricking Ula into swallowing a stone. She remembered sitting, shivering on that moonlit beach, snickering the hubris of the gods, the warm bodies of her kin quaking with laughter beside her, relentlessly mortal and alive. Those stories had taught her not to fear gods, nor to trust them. Her childhood, she had come to understand, had been a quiet battleground. The respectable merfolk of the world would prefer to wipe the worship of Kosi from existence, to forget the trickster god entirely. But his worshippers, secret and otherwise, would never let that happen. 
If they wanted to build statues of Kosi, to leave him things, to tell the children heretical stories, who was going to stop them? A trickster could make the tribe's troubles disappear in the night, now and then. But they could do far worse than that, too, if anyone tried to stop them. And there might be a trickster in any tribe. Other cultures did not tell children stories like this, about mocking tradition and defying the gods. But other cultures did not have Kosi. Kosi had kept vigil. His tricksters had made sure they remembered that even gods were fallible. How many would have turned to the monster's side, or given up all hope, or simply gone mad when the Eldrazi rose, if not for those stories? Had that been the point all along? Or had they just gotten lucky? Slowly, holding her breath without meaning to, she walked up to the statues of the three. She looked up at them, towering above her. And she spit in Ula's blank, stupid face. You do not reign here. Not now, not ever. Nothing happened. Nothing changed. There was only spit and stone and silence. Kiora snorted and curled up to sleep beneath the statue of Kosi. The only honest god. We always knew you were a liar. Under the stony eyes of false gods, clutching her stolen weapon, Kiora found uneasy sleep. It was late the following day when she found her people. She saw the Eldrazi first, swarming in the water and swooping down from the sky. They'd surrounded a school of merfolk and herded them away from the shore. Kiora gripped the bident and sped up. There were perhaps a hundred merfolk swimming in tenuous formation. Aquatic Eldrazi, Ulamog's lineage from the look of them, with featureless, bone-white heads and masses of writhing tentacles had gotten between them and the shore. There were soldiers among the merfolk, keeping the Eldrazi at bay with nets and spears, but the creatures were picking off stragglers. One of the Eldrazi grabbed a merfolk and squeezed, and then it relaxed its tentacles. But instead of a corpse, all that came out was a billowing cloud of that awful dust. Kiora shuddered. She called to the great creatures of the deep. No need to summon, not when Zendikar would offer up allies freely. She called and heard them answer. In the meantime, the Bident, finally. She reached out, took hold of some nameless strand of water, and flicked the Bident. A vortex formed near one of the Eldrazi, sending it tumbling. Tricky. She tried again, a bigger flick, and sucked another Eldrazi into the deeps. She laughed, bubbling. Oh yes, this was good. But the bigger Eldrazi wouldn't go down so easily. More vortexes, and then her allies were there. A few giant octopuses and a great gnarled serpent. They set to work, swiping up the smaller Eldrazi and wrestling with the larger ones. Meanwhile, the merfolk took advantage of her distraction to swim for shore, 
the soldiers among them hanging back to cover the retreat. One of her octopuses fell, too many of its arms worn through. Another grappled with the largest of the Eldrazi, rolling and pitching through the water. Suckered tentacles intertwined with unnatural sinewy ones, a massive ball of flesh and fury that kicked up enough sediment to obscure the combatants. The first of the merfolk reached the shore, but if that big Eldrazi bested her octopus, it needed help. She swam toward shore, channeling power through the bident. It glowed pleasingly. She felt the octopus surge, filled with the strength of the deep. She felt her way through the murky waters to shore and stood, triumphant, as the octopus squeezed the last trace of false, unsettling life out of the big Eldrazi. By the time she was finished and the wounded octopus slithered back into the depths, the beach was full merfolk refugees. Not a hundred, but nearly. The survivors spread across the beach, huddled in tight-knit groups. It was a hodgepodge of tribes, and even though they were in her home waters, all the faces she saw were strangers. Kiora sat down heavily on a rock apart from the main group, laying the Biden to cross her knees. No one had thanked her, but she didn't begrudge them. They were busy tending their wounds and counting the missing. And who is she to them? A stranger with a strange weapon. Kiora! Kiora stood up at the voice. A young woman shouldered her way past the groups of survivors, eyes bright. She was laden with packs of scrolls. Tori! She had just enough time to move the Bidens aside before the younger merfolk enveloped her in an embrace worthy of an octopus. Turi turned to the survivors behind her, arms still wrapped around Kiora. It's her! My sister! I told you she'd come back! Kiora rolled her eyes, still smiling. What tales have you been spinning about me, little fish? Turi held her at arm's length and grinned. Only true things. I told them my sister's been to places they've never even heard of, and she brings me treasures, and no matter how long she's been gone, she always comes back, even the time I saw her get eaten by a serpent with my own two eyes. Kiora shuddered at that memory, years distant. Tori made light of it now, but it had been the most horrible moment in their young lives. They'd been exploring too far out, at Kiora's urging, past the edge of the continental shelf, when a serpent had cruised up out of the darkness to swallow them. Kiora had darted out in front of it, got its attention, and shouted for her sister to swim hard and not look back. Tori had looked anyway, and her panicked face was the last thing Kiora had seen before the serpent's jaws closed around her, and the world dissolved, her planeswalker spark igniting in a moment of boiling panic. It had been months before she'd found her way back to Zendikar and her people. The revelation that there were other worlds than hers paled in comparison to the certainty that she hadn't done enough to save Tori. When she'd finally gotten back, she'd found Tori stick-thin and glassy-eyed, wasting away, killing herself with guilt at Kiora's sacrifice. They'd made a pact after that. Kiora had promised to come back, and Tori had promised to wait for her. And they believed you? Well... Kiora hugged her sister again. I'll see what I can do. 
I wouldn't want to let you down. Tori examined the bident. Is that for me? Kiora often brought her trinkets from other worlds. On this trip, she hadn't had the time. Kiora pulled it away with a smile. No! I stole it fair and square. You stole it? From who? A sea god. A real sea god. Tori stuck her tongue out at Kiora. It's true! Go see, take me if I lie. Kiora held up a hand as she said it. Tori paled. A couple of nearby merfolk stared. Kiora? People don't do that anymore. Swear by the gods. Kiora cocked her head. Why not? They'll blaspheme against gods, but not against monsters? Please. Some of these people have seen Kozy, Kozilek, before he left. Lost family and homes to him. Think about how they feel. Left? Tori groaned. Not the point. But she surely knew better than to stand in the way of her sister's relentless curiosity. No one's seen him in months. Or Emrakul. Only Ulamog. Some people are saying the other two have gone back to wherever they came from. Kiora frowned. Was that possible? Could they have... left? I'll believe it when I see it. What about our tribe? Tori hugged herself, suddenly looking very young. I don't know. I was studying at Seagate. Studying? You? I like learning. So do I. That's why I travel. Kiora hadn't meant it to sting, but Tori flinched. So you were at Seagate. Then what? The Eldrazi. They overran the place. I was lucky to get away. Not... Not everyone did. I joined up with this group to try to get home. On our way out of Seagate, we saw Ulamog in the distance. Ulamog is at Seagate? Wrong question. She knew it was the wrong question. But she had to know, damn it. I don't care where Ulamog is. I'm trying to get home, Kiora, to our family. Do you even care what's happened to them? Now the others nearby looked away, pretending not to hear. Nice of them. Kiora put her hands on Tori's shoulders. Little sister. I knew what was happening here. I worried for you the whole time I was away, for everyone, but especially you. You don't know what it means to me to see you well. Yes, I do. Every time you leave, I wonder if you'll come back. And I know that if something ever does happen to you, I'll never find out. I'll never be able to follow you. If I could take you with me, I would. No, you wouldn't. You'd want me to stay here, stay safe, wouldn't you? Nowhere on Zendikar is safe. Not now. That's why I'm not concerned about finding the tribe. That's why I'm headed for Seagate. If nobody stops Ulamog, everyone will die, no matter where they are. Too loud. People turned to look. Back to Seagate? No. Kiora, is it? A gruff voice interrupting what was obviously a private moment. Lout. Kiora disentangled herself from Turi and turned to the stranger. 
He was old and scarred, with the darkened scales of one who'd spent too long away from water. His accent sounded Sejiri, and he spoke like someone who expected to be listened to even so far from home. Kiora immediately disliked him. That's me. I am Yanai. Thank you for your assistance. No trouble at all. We're all on the same side now. Aren't we, Sejiri? Yanai looked pained, though she wasn't sure why. Merfolk ethnic divisions bred rivalry, not hatred. Had that changed? Of course. I hope we're traveling in the same direction as well. Depends. I'm going to Seagate. It was true. It hadn't been a few minutes ago, but if that was where Ulamog was, she wasn't going to waste time hiding somewhere else. We've just come from Seagate. We're not going back. That's a shame. <sighs> I suppose I'll take my sister and my sea monsters and go. Kiora, don't be stupid. We're talking about a titan, a god. You can't stand up to that. Kozalek and Emrakul are gone. Maybe, maybe Ulamog will go as well. Maybe they'll all leave us alone. Throwing yourself in his path won't do any good. There's no shelter at Seagate. He climbed onto a rock, letting his voice grow louder. Our plan hasn't changed. We're heading down the coast, away from the worst of the swarm, away from Ulamog. Then, though the journey will be long and arduous, we know where we must go. He turned and looked out over the great, wide ocean. What an idiot. Across the sea, to Marasa. We've heard it's better there. It can't be worse. There were nodding heads in the assembled crowd. One of them, to Kiora's frustration, was Tori's. A lovely speech. You've got quite the voice, a storyteller's voice, in fact. And I glared at her. Do you know any... cozy stories? Yanai's eyes widened. How dare you? You know, cozy stories. Like the one about Ula and the clam. Or the time Maria mistook a jellyfish for the moon. Blasphemy and mockery. Terry, you didn't mention that your sister was a trickster. It would have saved us some misspent hope. She's not a trickster. Tori looked far from certain as she said it. Kiora wasn't one of Kosi's devoted cultists. Not really. She was just a mischievous soul who'd never quite grown out of thumbing her nose at the gods. It's fine. If you don't know any Kosi stories, you should have just said so. Tori gripped her arm. Kiora, stop. Kiora shrugged out of her grip and walked out into the surf, letting the Biden's points trail in the water behind her. All those currents spread out like threads. She tugged on one and felt it move. I know a Kosi story. It's about the time Kosi taught a mortal how to steal Ula's spear. She walked back up the beach, dragging the bident and the sea behind her. The mortal took the spear and ran. And when Ula came looking for his weapon... 
The crowd was silent, attentive. The weather rapt or furious, Kiora could not say. The mortal spat in Ula's eye. A great wave broke over and around her, slapping against the beach but parting around the assembled merfolk, so it did no more than tickle their toes, even as it thundered past them, up the beach to roar against the rocks. She even spared Yenai from the wave, though she was sorely tempted to let it bowl him over and carry him and his fragile dignity somewhere else. I'm not going to wait around in some hole, or risk my life on a trek across the sea while the Eldrazi devour the world. I'm going to Seagate. I'm going to stand and fight. She raised the bident. There was silence. Well? Around her, dozens of merfolk shook their heads, eyes wide. No, you're out of your mind. Kiora turned to Tori. Kiora, no. I can't go back there. I can't. Please. Don't. I have to. You know I do. I just got you back. We just found each other again. And I thought... Kiora gathered her sister in a long, warm hug. I'll come back. I promise. Old words... Well worn. I'll wait for you. Kiora stepped away then, into the surf, and began calling a serpent. If she wanted to get to Seagate before Ulamog hit land and rendered most of her assets moot, she'd need to hurry. And half a dozen of the merfolk quietly came and stood beside her. And I watched them go, crestfallen. He had to know she'd just pulled away most, maybe all of the devotees of Kosi in his little troop. Perhaps there'd be less trouble with them gone. Perhaps. But perhaps there'd be trouble only tricksters could solve, and he, and Turi, would have to get by without them. My sister, she's going with Yenai. I need someone to look after her. Please. A tall woman nodded and hung back. She deserved blessings for that, though Kosi gave none. Kiora turned back toward the beach, where Tori, Yanai, Tori's nameless protector, and the others stood watching, with expressions ranging from sorrowful to angry to simply exhausted. Good fortune. Fortune. Kosi's domain. Even though she really did wish them well, she couldn't resist needling. And then, a serpent rolled up onto the beach, and she and her little band of tricksters climbed onto its back. As the beach and the surf and the upturned faces of Tori and Yanai and the others fell away, Kiora waved a quick salute before the serpent's strokes carried them away. She learned her companions' names, heard their grim tales of how life on Zendikar had changed for the worse. She learned that Balaged Sejiri were gone, and felt just the slightest bit sorry for reminding Yanai of his lost homeland. And then she told them the tale of how she stole the Bident, and swore it was true, every word of it. Seagate beckoned, Ulamog awaited, the serpent swam, and the sea resounded with the laughter of tricksters.
Thank you for listening to this production of Voice of All. As listener-supported entertainment, we rely on you not just for the voices of the characters, but also to keep us going and growing. If you enjoyed what you heard, please support us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, or following us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, or just plain sharing with your friends. You can also support us financially on Patreon for exclusive perks. Home Waters was written by Kelly Diggs. The podcast was produced and edited by Gin Keshi with sound editing by Noxshade. This week's story featured the voice talents of Jordan McDougall, Emily Doms, Christina Edelman, and Brian Rozek. Voice of All is unofficial fan content permitted under the Wizards of the Coast fan content policy. Magic the Gathering is copyright Wizards of the Coast. Thank y'all so much for listening. Have a fantastic day.